Welcome back, everyone. It's the Self Reg Show. I'm Susan Hopkins, one of your hosts, and I am here with the amazing Stuart Shanker. And this week, we are going to be talking about a concept called limbic breaking. But before we get into that and uh, what it is, why it was such a game changer for me uh, and and hopefully for you, uh, I, I'd like to just ask Stuart, how are things? What's new in your zoo? Uh, absolutely nothing, which is the best news of all. <laughs> it's so funny how life changes as, as you go through the, you know, the ages and the generations and, you know, all the people joking about the birds and yeah, yeah you reach a certain age and then yeah, how ex the most exciting thing that happens is a certain bird gets a new bird feeder <laughs> and I'm kind of fitting into that, into that groove of things, but it certainly doesn't feel like nothing is going on. It feels like the world is uh, whirlwinding around us a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and for that, I'm always thankful for self-reg. You know, when we think about this self-reg show, uh, sometimes we're going to be doing, talking about concepts like this one. Sometimes we'll be meeting people. Uh, sometimes we'll be looking at different perspectives. We'll be looking at practice, always a little bit uh, of the science and the theory. Uh, but this one today is on, it's actually, you wrote in an email to me this week uh, for a different purpose, that this was, this was an advanced concept. Uh, it's not your basics in self-reg, and, um, and, and I think you're right about that. And yet the self-reg show is interesting because we're going to be skipping around. There'll be things that are, you know, revisiting some of, of, of the newer ideas, uh, sometimes it'll be going back to, you know, the core foundations, unpacking it in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but this one just seemed really, really relevant to me right now. So what can you tell us about limbic breaking? Where did this, you coined the term, if I recall correctly, uh, the first time I ever heard you say it was about five years ago. I know you wrote a, a blog on it. We'll find it. I remember being in a room at UBC in Vancouver uh, and you did it. We're doing a workshop on it and... Uh, the penny hit for me. I heard the term and I, I remember thinking it was spelled breaking, like B-R-E-A-K-I-N-G. Many people make that mistake. So I was thinking, okay, limbic, it's like a brain break. And it's not at all. It's 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 breaking B-R-A-K-I-N-G. And that's actually a pretty significant, um, important thing to keep in mind as we go. So what would you like to tell us about where this came from, how you came up with this idea uh, and, you know, any, any kind of a story behind the background of it, Stuart? Um, you know, I've been thinking about this for an awful long time, but uh, there was one episode in particular that um, sort of led to the uh, theory, and that was in the Mary study, one of the things that we had to do was we had to, test every single child uh, on IQ. And right near the beginning of the testing, so we had a psychometrist come in, and a very nice person, and um, we had a special room set up. And we decided to start off with one of our brightest, uh, maybe our very brightest kid. And he was a smart little guy, three years old. And... Um, uh, you know, I'm not a psychometrist myself, but um, if I, you know, had an intuition, it would have been that he was certainly, in, you know, 120 plus IQ, very smart little kid. And um, 
we were crowded in the observation room watching all this going on and he stopped and um, nothing she could do uh, could get him to continue. And he ended up with, uh, you know, a very low IQ uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of around 80. And this puzzled me. Um, I knew that there was something going on. Um, and I wanted to understand why, why uh, my expectations were um, so out of whack with what we were seeing. And when I say why, um, I really wanted to know what was it about the situation, what was going on in his brain. Uh, it struck me that there was something um, really important here. And just around the same time, I was reading Dan Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And Kahneman uh, told a really good story, and that was he was testing subjects on something called the ball and bat problem. And it's one of these stupid logic problems. You know, if a ball and a bat costs a dollar and 10 cents and the bat is a dollar more expensive than the ball, how much did the ball cost? And uh, what was interesting about this research was that Kahneman was sitting in a separate room, kind of like me sitting in the observation room. And he could predict within like almost instantaneously when a subject was about to quit. Um, so they'd be trying to solve it, trying to solve it. And then, you know, sometimes they did, but a lot of times they couldn't solve it and they gave the wrong answer. Um, and he could tell by observing their, uh, he had a, an eye tracker called the Toby eye tracker. And he could tell by watching the subject's pupils and by measuring their heart rate, the precise moment at which they were going to give up. So that was really cool. And uh, I should tell you just a little bit about Kahneman. Uh, Kahneman began, he, so he was a psychologist. Uh, and in the 1970s, he did some groundbreaking research on the connection between pupil dilation, and what he called mental effort. And so uh, when what he discovered in his research was when the pupils reached maximum dilation, that was the point at which uh, people gave up and would just give the wrong answer. Okay. There was clearly... Um, some sort of indication that the the pupils were uh, what they were correlating with was energy depletion, uh, and you have to remember that when we're thinking, when we're working on a problem, uh, we actually do it with our whole body. Um, our muscles tense up, our the muscles in our face tense up, and our eyebrows. Uh, and uh, we've known for a long time that thinking is very expensive, uh, meaning that we use a lot of energy when we're trying to solve a problem um, because, uh, you know, this wonderful expression that Steve Porges came up with, uh, thinking is a whole 
body phenomenon. We think with our body. And in fact, I won't, I won't talk about it now, but there's some real interesting uh, theory here about how problem solving evolved from hunting. We use, this is Steve's great theory. Um, and this was something that Steve himself was working at the, at the start of his career. Um, how uh, um, there are these very interesting shifts that go on in the, in the brain and the body when we're hunting. We go into what's called an ergotropic state. And, um, you know, we're burning an awful lot of energy. And uh, we adapted that hunting system for problem solving. So we're using essentially what was originally a hunting behavior, uh, a hunting adaptation. We're now using it for solving problems with our whole body. And this was clearly what was going on in, in Dan Kahneman's research. And what he discovered, and this was the key, this is the key to limbic breaking. He discovered that there's what he called an inverted V curve, meaning we go up, and then we hit some sort of a peak, and then that's it. And we stop trying to solve the problem. So that the apex of the V, of the inverted V, that's the point at which the limbic brakes kick in. Um, and the idea is that some system uh, within our brain is monitoring uh, something, monitoring um, my own thing on this has actually advanced a little since I first introduced this idea, and I'll explain that in two secs. But the idea was the idea and reframed was that um, that the hypothalamus, I thought, um, is essentially stopping us from uh, from using up way too much energy. So it's a breaking system. And then I thought about the kid in this study, and what was really interesting, you know, as I was thinking about this, was that at the moment of breaking, he stood up, he jumped up, uh, and I I realized that his standing up and his his hands were were clenched. Uh, I realized that uh, this was uh, yet another you know indication of limbic breaking. Now. I got to do one last bit of science. If you read Kahneman, you're already blowing my mind. So, oh. and and I was excited. I I chose this topic, but now you've taken it in other directions. So, holy smokes, we may be here for a while. <laughs> well, I want to go in one more direction in a sec. Um, now, uh, I use the term. What Kahneman said was that pupil dilation and heart rate, um, which are we've known this forever. Uh, these are indices of autonomic arousal. So what that means in English is that when we're working really hard on some on problem, um, our heart goes up, um, we're, we're recruiting uh, energy, uh, and there's a, a complicated story here, which we won't go into, but basically cortisol is going up. Um, because the cortisol is what gives us the energy, releasing the energy that we need to solve this problem because we're using all our muscles, etc. And um, so in Kahneman's uh, discussion of this, he talks about it as mental effort, that somehow, I don't know what, is it, what that means. Um, there's been this idea of mental effort going back to the beginning of the 20th century in Charles Spearman, 
But the idea is basically that somehow the brain is working really hard. But then a team of psychologists did a, a fabulous study uh, in which they had people um, uh, holding onto those, you know, those hand grips you use if you want to strengthen your hands. So you had to hold on to those for as long as you possibly could. And guess what? They were tracking pupil dilation and heart rate. And they could predict, just like Kahneman, they could predict the exact moment at which you let go with the hand grips. Um, and so what that told us was that this was really about uh, effort, not mental effort, but simply effort, meaning, you know, we're using up a lot of our glucose on this task. And, you know, going back to Steve Porges's point, they found this really interesting uh, parallel between mental and physical effort. They're both using all these muscles that evolve for hunting. Okay, so then I'm thinking, well, that's real interesting because the little guy in that first study was clenching his, like I told you, he was clenching his, his hands just like somebody that was clenching the hand grips. So, okay, but I still haven't explained anything. All I'm doing here is I'm noticing something really interesting. And what I'm noticing is that uh, when we're engaged in what is essentially a stress, and the stress could be hunting, the stress could be holding on to these grips, uh, the stress could be solving a problem, um, we reach a certain point at which something in the brain says, stop. And when it stops us, it stops us on a dime. We come to a screeching halt. Uh, and why that happens um, is, you know, in reframed, I talked about it in terms of, an, uh, you know, I gave a, a, an evolutionary scenario, but I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. And um, I recently come to the, you know, I've become aware that there's something really interesting going on here. And that's what I want to explain. So, okay, so what's going on in limbic breaking? So what's happening is we've got this stress, the stress of, of squeezing or the stress of solving a problem. And um, we reach a certain point where a switch is, is clicked and we stop, come to a halt. And what I wanted to know, what I, what I do want to know is why. And... Um, you have to go back a little bit in self-right theory and remember what, what we're talking about when we're talking about a stress. So a stress is anything that requires us to burn energy to, um, you know, to keep our heart racing or our breathing fast or whatever. So what that means is that there's this thing going on inside the limbic system. Um, in fact, inside, as I thought originally, inside the hypothalamus. So what's happening in a nucleus inside the hypothalamus, a little tiny part of the hypothalamus. You remember the hypothalamus is at the bottom of the limbic system. It's actually in the diencephalon. Um, and what happens is it releases 
a neurochemical which starts a chain that ends up in cortisol. And cortisol is produced in the adrenal gland. Okay, now when cortisol gets really high, okay, it triggers a system deep inside the brain, deep inside the gray brain. The cortisol gets so high that the gray brain says, this isn't just a challenge, this is a threat. And it responds with this massive nonlinear transition, that's Fogel's term, this nonlinear transition. So what that means in English is these systems deep inside the, inside the midbrain, what they do is they suddenly transition to deal with the threat. Okay, and that means a flood of neurochemicals. So we get, we get what are called catecholamines. So these get released, adrenaline, noradrenaline, epinephrine, all of these things, and of course dopamine, to deal with the threat. And it's an ancient brain. It doesn't know. It doesn't know that you're just, that the kid's just solving a problem. It thinks that it, as far as it's concerned, cortisol gets too high. It must be a threat. Must be a danger. And what it does when it thinks, when that part of the brain thinks it's a, a, a survival situation, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex. It shuts down thinking, and problem solving. That's why we see an inverted V. That's why you get this sudden stop. Holy cow. So why, before you go anymore, I just want to make sure I'm understanding yeah. something. So I'm. let's say I'm a teacher or um, a principal yeah, 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 or yeah, yeah. I'm, in, I'm in a school and there is, it's math test time, okay? Great, so it great, is- great standardized tests of some kind. And I have, I, 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 I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I'm trying to make sense of this. So please make sure you, you correct if I get any of this wrong. But let's just say I'm on the other side of a wall and I can see this whole group of grade nine students or grade six students or, or teachers. Um, all I can see is their eyeballs, right? <laughs> so all I, can, all I can see is their eyeballs. I know they're writing a, a, a test of some kind. I don't know their age. I don't know their gender. I can't see the sweat on their brow. I can't hear them swear. None of that. All I can see is their pupils. And if I'm watching their pupils a big portion of the time, I should be able to predict the moment before they put the pencil down or get off the keyboard. Like that, even if it's just a split second, yep. just because it, so that's like, that's like huge for any of us that are talking about motivation for kids. Like we're saying, oh, try harder, stick with right. it. And it's like, no, that actually is happening to them. It's not that they, oh, I'm not going to do this test anymore. I, it, it, It's something that happens first and then the pencil goes down. Even if it's just a split second, that's pretty huge. Am huge. I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now it's the perfect example for us to think about. Um, so let's go back to my little guy. Um, so what we're seeing with his when his limbic brakes kicked in was a stress response. 
It was a response to the stress had become too great for him. And, and so his brain goes through this shift and it stops him from solving the IQ test, from even working on it, from answering. So why the stress? What would, I mean, they're simple enough questions. Well, remember that our little guys were kids on the spectrum. So first of all, he's in a room that he never went into. Um, you know, the, the, the therapy room was a fun room and it had toys and swing and trampoline. He's in a little tiny room that he's never gone into before with a person he doesn't know. He's never met her before. And there's a sort of relentless pace to an IQ test. And that's the whole point um, because it's solving against time. So, wow, that's a lot of stress for a kid. Now, with a kid on the spectrum, you could do what Susan just said. You could say, and in fact, she tried. Um, so, when the breaks kick in, we can try to use our voice or our presence to push them to override the brakes. But when you're working with a little guy on the spectrum, overriding the brakes means you're going to get a meltdown. You're going to get, and so, and she was, the psychometrist was attentive to that and didn't push too hard. But now you've got a problem. And the problem is that you can't test him again because in his brain, there's a memories formed. This is a threatening situation. I remember the lot, my brain remembers the last time I was in here. I'm not doing this again. You won't even get him in that room again. And unfortunately that's what happens with math. Um, so with math, if a kid's limbic brakes have kicked in, and we've tried to override them. We've tried to, you know, come on, you can do it. And we think to ourselves, oh, he's just being lazy. He's not trying. Now what's happened is he's stored a memory that this his brain thinks that this is a, a threat. And he's not even going to try the next time. So now I started to think, okay, so with my little guy, I can figure out what the stresses were. What are the stresses for the little kid or the older kid in math? I mean, why would math be a stress? You're just trying to solve a problem. And we now know through some really great research that um, people, that kids solve mathematical problems at different rates, that some of them have um, the way their brain uh, processes math information, it's a little slower than, say, average kids. And the problem's not that, um, the problem's not that they can't solve the problem, it's that they can't solve it at the same pace. And I was thinking about our little guy and why I thought he was so smart. Well, of course, when he's with me and he knew me, and there was a lot of physical contact and he got touched and everything, so there was, you know, we were reducing the stress dramatically. So if I take that math phobic kid, and there's an awful lot of them now, maybe 40%, and I figure out how to reduce the stress, and we got lots of ways of helping a kid who's got some processing slowness uh, to build up that system. Now all of a sudden, what we find is 
It was never something to do with laziness. It was that his brain was responding to, there was just too much cortisol. And if I can, if I can get that cortisol system back into balance, and that's something we talk about a lot, this balance again in the in the hypothalamus, uh, this balance in this little part of the hypothalamus, uh, one part one part is producing. Uh, uh, let me just explain this because it's so cool. So I got a little nucleus in the hypothalamus. It's called the periventricular nucleus, and it's producing the first neurochemical that ultimately results in cortisol something called corticotropin releasing factor. But also in the same system, the same nucleus, this tiny little group of neurons, there's another function and that produces oxytocin. And oxytocin balances the CRF. And what's happening in limbic breaking is there's no oxytocin. The stress is going up and up, and there's nothing to to manage it. There's nothing to. Yeah. If I can balance that, if I can figure out how can I produce this oxytocin, what produces oxytocin? Well, we do. Um, that was the whole point of me being with the little guy, you know, and we play and smile, and I touch him. Um, that that releases the oxytocin. But in that situation that Susan just described, you know, you're in a classroom and everybody else and you're a little slower and your cortisol is going up way high and your, your limbic breaks kick in because your stress was too great. And there's nothing mitigating, there's nothing triggering the oxytocin. So it that's why it kicks in. That's why the limbic breaks kick in. And then it's, I realized, I think, yeah, go ahead. It's where, like, it's where I just keep thinking of why self-reg is so, so hopeful and so practical too, you know, yeah, so right. I have heard the term limbic breaking before and, and, um, and people have used it to say like the blue brain, the prefrontal cortex deciding to suppress or whatever, you know, these urges until what? Until until you can't, you know, and this isn't just kids. I know for me, I do those puzzles. I like those like cordal and cordal. I don't do them every day, but I, I do them. And I actually love, I feel the energy burn of the problem solving, but they're really, they're kind of fun. And I do them just in moments here and there. But there's one with numbers, Stuart. And, you know, That's and I have math courses. There's, and I do it, but it is like every ounce of my, and you've got to kind of figure out, you have to add the plus or the divided sign and take the numbers. And it's, it's, it's this, uh, I, I, those out there will know what it is. I can't remember the name of it, but I give up my limbic breaks kick in sometimes, or I push through until I'm exhausted. And what's really interesting is, but it's not fun. It's not fun. Right. And, you know, and when we flip on the other side, like I have someone in my life, this is just a family friend of my daughter's who has dyslexia and has right. sort of gotten through the system. Um, and there's all kinds of other sort of things going on. But I mean, you know, when he talks about about his dyslexia, you know, it, he's, 
he like it's especially the big words and things all jumping around but he doesn't have it with numbers so when he's in math this doesn't happen to him but guess where it does happen anything with a whole bunch of text right so it's really really fascinating and and then we begin to think about that's why self-break is so important because like i love the oxytocin but it's also what stressors can i dial down where you know what what are the things how can you know i even have to catch myself still today and as much suffering as I know not slipping into that self-control parenting or whatever you know shoulda coulda woulda than these sorts of things and it's like no there's more going on here we have that compassion and think about okay what can I dial down so that those limbic like it's not trying to never write a math test it's saying okay this kid is super capable you know I can can do that what are the things I can do to make to make me able to work more on the problem um without it slipping into that self-control like there's so many so many apps and movements right now about trying to force focus I try them (laughs) they don't they don't help me I I just feel anxiety around them so I find self-break really really is a path forward so Back to you. Where were you going to take us next? Well, you you, you actually um, just put your finger on the two points that I think are the most important. Okay, so uh, let's go back to my little guy. And um, we actually arranged for another psychologist to come in, a psychometrist who was trained in working with kids on the spectrum. Um, and her approach was radically different. So first of all, um, she said, we're going to do the test in the room that he's comfortable in, the room that he always goes into. No brainer. (laughs) And we're both going to sit on the floor um, because that's what he's used to. And he's used to his therapist being on the floor. And we're going to make it fun. And we're not going to do it against the clock because what we're trying to find out is you know, what is, uh, where are his cognitive strengths and where are the cognitive areas where we can look to strengthen a little. So we're going to use the IQ test as a sort of, instead of thinking of it like we always have as limits, uh, you know, people can think of limbic breaks as, well, they kick in because that's the limit of this kid's intelligence. Uh, 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 uh. They are the indication of when there's been too much stress. And we can use them as what we call in psych heuristics. And they give us these ideas, these clues of where we can work to, to build up systems, to build up. Now, there's a second part of what Susan said that is really, I think, the key. So, um, In self-reg, you know, you've got these five steps. And the third step is called reducing the stress. It's our reducing. And so a lot of people think of that in terms of, well, um, uh, does that mean that, you know, I've got to, you know, just whereas the other kids are already doing algebra, you know, he's just, we got to stick with, with with arithmetic yeah yeah and um or you know they think well you know if i'm going to dial down the stress that just means you know maybe what i need to do is turn down the lights or you know find out what are the reasons why you know and and these can be very effective by the way 
So like there's a, a fascinating uh, study, I can't remember where, maybe Australia and New Zealand, where they use portable carols um, for kids that were math phobic and they found that their math scores uh, improved dramatically. But remember that what we're talking about when we're talking about the cortisol that gets released to deal with stress, we're talking about a self-regulating system, mm-hmm. a self-regulating neurochemical system. So I mentioned, you know, you've got on the one hand, so I'm going to use my hands as my visual here. So on the one hand, I've got the stress chain is going up, you know, so the CRF, the cortisol is going up, but I've also Got on the other hand, the oxytocin's going up, and the other part that Susan mentioned, the pleasure, which is the opioids. So it's not that I need to say, here's my stress level, and I gotta keep it down here for this kid. But what I've got to do when I'm reducing what I'm reducing is that disparity. What I'm reducing is that lack of balance. And so maybe I'm going to do it by dialing down, or maybe I'm going to do it by increasing the oxytocin. How do I do that? Well, there's lots of ways. And that's what we teach in self-reg. So, you know, I'm going to bring this down, but at the same time, I'm going to raise this up. And maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise it up with my voice my soothing voice. We know that music produces oxytocin. We know that nature produces oxytocin. We know that exercise produces oxytocin. Guess what? We've got all this research telling us about how, well, you know, what we find with kids that are overstressed is a little music actually helps them or singing helps them. All of these studies or exercise or climbing, what we're doing is we're reducing the disparity between the cortisol and the oxytocin. We need the oxytocin to turn off the stress response, to keep it within here. So how do we do that? Well, we study self-reg. So what we realize in self-reg is that limbic breaking is our key it tells us the brakes have kicked in because of this disparity. So, so now what we're going to figure out is how to close it. And guess what? If instead of seeing this as what Susan said at the outset, it's not a motivation issue. It's not that the kids are being lazy or, or that we have to. Instead, we see the limbic brakes for what they are, a mechanical system that operates without our volition, without our awareness even. And we're going to use this to motivate ourselves to figure out why is the stress so great? What can I do to reduce the stress? And what can I do to to get that system, that self-regulating neurochemical system back into balance. What am I looking for? I'm looking for getting that kid into step four. So what I want is instead of seeing math or whatever your example as a threat 
if the child sees this or the teen sees this as something that feels good, by the way, when you get into balance, it feels good. It's as simple as that. It releases neurochemicals that, that are pleasant. That kid or me is going to be calm. And when I'm calm, it's not just that I've solved problems better. It's exactly what Susan said. It feels good to solve these problems. It doesn't leave me feeling shattered. It leaves me feeling pleasantly satisfied. You know, it's so amazing when I when I hear you talk, I can't I keep going to scenario after scenario after scenario of, of how we can apply this. Some people may hear this and you're thinking you're hearing three or four year olds and you're like, okay, but I, I'm in high school and I have 20 kids or I'm teaching in university and there's 150 students. What am I supposed to do? Or you can find that 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 reframing and that compassion to realize, okay, it is too much stress. And then we slip so easily back into, um, you know, behaviors, practices, or these ways of, you know, we think we're reducing stress and we're giving, I often hear about university students, we're giving them, you know, yeah. graphic organizers and time management classes. And we think that's actually reducing the stress. We don't realize we're not, we're, we may even be raising it. You know, I, I go back to Brenda Smith-Chan. Do you remember years ago, she had that psychology, I sure um, psychology, uh, um, so I was teaching at the university and it was a, an exam and the university in its wisdom, if you have power to influence this, don't do this, thought they, they scheduled the exam. Psych one, I think it was like first year psych. So like there were 300 students or something on a Sunday night at 8 p.m. And it was like, like at the end of the exam period. So December 17th or something. And so one of the things that she did um, was she, you know, she she joked and made fun. It's like she did all kinds of fun things around it. But one of the things was a pajama party and she made everybody cookies. And, you know, I know I, and, and here's, what's interesting. So some of the people that heard she did that, you know, some of the other professors are like, Oh, we, you know, we got to teach them the real world or whatever. And it's like, you know what, Um, from, from my perspective, it kind of goes back to what you were saying in your earlier example, Stuart, is we're trying to understand what these young people know. Getting, giving them burnt out, frustrated, set, you know, the sense of injustice, nervous, or any of these sorts of things, anything that we can do, you know, it's almost to, to turn down that temperature in that room. We stand a lot better chance of kids being able and young people being able to show us what, what they actually know, which is the purpose. That's not going on soft. That's believing that there is more than, you know, that's truly behavior is communication. We say that all the time, but no, it's like limbic breaking is a gift. When you're seeing nerves and kind of coming out in, in all kinds of ways, it's telling you something. Then you got to take those moments and do your own step forward and go, okay, what am I sensing? What is it telling me? You know, and where to from here? It's it's not about the strategies in the bucket. It's not about the cookies or the, you know, it's about the intention of trying to find a way to genuinely you know, lighten the stress load, especially from an equity perspective, because guess who has heavier stress loads? You know, black and brown children, children with diagnosis of different things, you know, socioeconomic status kind of can all be part of that as well. So I see you waiting. <laughs> I love when you're, you have that energy of you're waiting to respond. So, <laughs> well, there's just one last point about Brenda's uh, experiment, if you want to call it that. 
her class average was off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, you guys, um, you know, uh, Susan and I um, know Chris Robinson uh, really well. Um, and Chris was Mary's occupational therapist. And so what Chris did, uh, and so you have to try to imagine this person. Um, she is, I don't know, she's just a ball of fun. And so what she did was, as we're doing, as uh, Pam was, our psychometrist was doing the study. So Chris is there because that's that familiar presence. And every time he got an answer, every time he answered right or wrong, didn't matter. Chris went, yeah. And she'd go crazy and high five the kid. And so what that's doing is it's giving him that charge of dopamine and beta endorphins. And oh my goodness, does that feel good? And guess what it what that little brain is saying? I want more of that. And guess what? Brenda's kid, university students were saying, oh, I want another test. I want another challenge. And so I love what Susan just said, because what we're doing is we're not making things easy for them. We are supercharging the system that they need to go out, embrace challenge, to have that positive optimistic, take charge attitude. And that's going to filter through every aspect of their life, just as it did with this little three-year-old. Um, so this is a pretty big lesson. And, you know, it's independence. We, we, we This idea that we're bubble wrapping, even when we do warm, loving things. I used to get my kid ready for the, the, um, the standardized tests not by practicing anything, by having a good sleep, getting a good breakfast. Those were days I walked her to the school bus, you know, and and it's just really, really interesting. I remember to catch you telling yourself. me about that. Yeah, I see a lot of, you know, I see a lot of people that are not and agree with this. And then we slip back into this, this story that everything is a choice or that we need to practice grit or you know, that resilience, which is the suffering view of resilience is a, is, is a game changer, you know, but it, it, it you know, but, but thinking that it's just, you know, stick with itness or uh, and uh, mindset, even growth mindset. I, I think it, it can do, it can, you know, I, I, I definitely like the idea of not being fixed like this, this story of whatever, what's possible. Um, but when we go back to everything's about trying harder, well, what happens if you're me doing that math that math game and you just shut down or you're these university students or you're this little three-year-old and your brain has said threat, right? And and then you have all of the people around you who are your educators or, you, right. or you know, and, and the message is, is that there was something you did that you should have done differently and you didn't choose it. This, this kid with, um, with the dyslexia that I told you about is trying to do online learning and trying to catch up on courses he's behind and and struggling you know and what happens when that message is that you didn't try hard enough does that mean that there's an easy solution um to it i'm trying to support him in in a in a way um but i first have to recognize okay he really wants to do well there is something more going on here and i mean that's where we need to get back and check on our own self reg our own stress response our own 
sense of frustration when, you know, we set everything up perfectly and it didn't happen. Our own, you know, the soft eyes that we talk about ourselves as a strategy. It's not the strategy in the bucket. And I don't know. I just think self-reg is just so hopeful because it gives you some practical things to work on. Um, and we're genuinely trying to take in information all the time and see what more it is that we can understand so that we can help and be part of the solution, not not another stressor and somebody's already over heavy backpack. My favorite thing about this podcast and really any chance I get to dialogue with Stuart on self-reg is you never know where you're going to land. And I always end every session and every opportunity to kind of dive deeper into a topic like we did today around limbic breaking with more questions, more wonderings, more connections, more links. Like today, I just couldn't stop thinking um, of the the link uh, that Stuart opened up about uh, about Porges' work and uh, and Kahneman's work and sort of connecting uh, the whole body and and connecting it. You know, uh, prior, uh, you know, when there used to be hunting hunting practices. Uh, that that they were actually linked to future problem solving and that sort of that that whole intense body focus and, and in the moment kind of experience. So that has me wondering, <laughs> you heard me mention today that some of these practices where we, um, where we, you know, we're trying to do things to focus attention. I've got the apps. I try all kinds of different things. And I'm not sure they do what they're supposed to do. I, I totally believe they do for some people. For me, I'm off to the next thing. And yet I can go like zoom right in with that kind of intensity that we were talking about today. So I can't wait uh, to see where Stuart uh, is going to take us next and 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 what more there is to uh, to unpack on the Self-Reg Show. So thanks for joining us. Please like and follow us. Please share uh, this, this podcast with others. We'd love to hear your feedback, your comments, your questions. Uh, and as always, uh, thank you for being part of the Suffrag community. Stuart, final word is yours. Okay, this has been, this has just been a great conversation, Susan. And I can't wait to see where you take us next. <laughs> bye bye, everybody. <laughs>